Good morning, church. As you can see by the uh, graphic behind me, you're going to listen to a sermon from Colossians today. Uh, for those of you who have been with us for some time, you know that we're preaching verse by verse, passage by passage through the Gospel of John. But when the women go on the women's retreat and when the men go on the men's retreat, we just take a pause since a large portion of our congregation is away from us and we uh, have a sermon from elsewhere. And so this morning, we're going to be in the book of Colossians, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to eventually work our way to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. That's going to be the text that we spend the majority of the time in. But we're actually kind of going to preach through the whole book of Colossians today, in some sense, to understand what's going on in the book of Colossians I've entitled this sermon, A Structure for Worship. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, some say, is the most important text on Christian worship in the entirety of the Bible. And so I hope that we're edified and encouraged as we consider worship. But in order to do that, we're going to talk about the book of Colossians as a whole. So I'll begin by reading Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, and then we'll work our way through the book of Colossians. But let me read the word of God. I do now invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. Paul writes, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all else, or above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you that we have an opportunity to gather with little to no fear, Lord. We're mindful that there are brothers and sisters around the globe who have gathered or will gather today who don't have the freedom that we do. So we just pause to give you thanks that we can open your word freely, Lord, and sometimes it's a fear that we take it for granted, that we get into the routine of gathering and singing and praying and worshiping and sitting under the preaching of your word, and it's just something that we do on Sunday. But Lord, we know when we're thinking rightly that your word is truth and that you have seen fit to sanctify us by the word of truth. So that's what we ask that you would do in this hour, that you would help those of us in Christ to become more like Christ, 
and those in my hearing who do not know Christ, that by your grace and the power of your spirit, they would behold the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would understand his person and his work, and that they would call upon the name of the Lord and thus be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want us to examine the book of Colossians as if it were our new home. We're going to look at the book of Colossians, and we're going to get acquainted with our new home, but we're going to spend the vast majority of our time in Colossians chapter 3. And you can see the outline before you, and I'm going to work, it, work through this uh, passage in that way, that there's this house that we're becoming acquainted with, and that we're going to spend time in the master bedroom, and we're going to think through Colossians 3 in terms of a morning routine. What are we going to wake up and do as we wake up in this new house? So let us begin first with the house, simply the book of Colossians. It's been said, simply put, that the book of Colossians is about one thing, primarily, and that is the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of Christ in all things, brothers and sisters. The book of Colossians was written to express the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ in response to the report that false teachers were saying the exact opposite to the church of Colossae. As a matter of fact, they were trying to dilute the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with Greek philosophy, with Jewish legalism, with pagan superstitions, and other unorthodox trends. And so in other words, we could say against all the wayward teaching that the church at Colossae was hearing, the Apostle Paul wrote to say Christ is supreme, Christ is enough, and that is the end of the story. And we could very simply outline this book by saying the first two chapters of the book of Colossians, we see the supremacy of Christ articulated in doctrine or expressed in teaching. And then the last two chapters, chapters 3 and chapter 4, we see the supremacy of Christ applied to everyday life. And that's often what the Apostle Paul does. He gives us teaching, he gives us doctrine, he gives us theology up front. And then at the tail end of his letters, he's saying, so what? So what are you supposed to do about these truths that I just proclaimed to you? And he gives us practical steps, if you will, to be faithful to Christ in everyday life. After greeting the church at Colossae and offering thanksgiving and prayer to God, listen to what Paul writes in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He writes, he, he being Christ, referred to in verse 13 as his beloved son, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, that in everything he, Christ, might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood 
his cross. We see here in verse 15 that Christ is the image or the visible representation or the visible manifestation of the invisible God. We also see in verse, 10, verse 15 that Christ is the firstborn or the preeminent one who is over all creation. In verse 16, we see that Christ is the agent of creation, that by or through him all things were made. And believe it or not, contrary to common thought, verse 16 also tells us that Christ is the purpose, that Christ is the purpose of creation's existence. That they were not only created by him and through him, but also for him. Verse 17 tells us that Christ is the pre-existent one, that he was not created. As a matter of fact, he was before all of creation. Verse 17 also tells us that Christ is the sustainer of all creation, that he upholds all things. Then we see in verse 18 that Christ is the head of the church. Maybe you've heard that before, and over the last couple years, we've considered what does it mean for Christ to be the head of the church? And we say... That when, when we say that Christ is the head of the church, we're, we're talking about he is primary in significance, that he is primary in authority, that he is above all things, and the believers of the church, the body of Christ, are to honor him above all else. Verse 18 also tells us that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And this is glorious, saints. Because what that means is that Christ was the first to be raised from the grave, but the firstborn means that he's not the last. In other words, those in Christ will likewise follow him in physical resurrection. And then finally in verses 19 and 20, we are offered two explanations for Christ's supremacy. Paul, Paul proclaims that Christ is supreme, and now in verse 19 and 20, he tells us why Christ is supreme. Reason number one is this, for in the person of Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That he is the God-man. That he has two natures, a divine nature, a human nature in one person. And reason number two is that through the person of Christ, all things will be reconciled by the blood of his cross. This does not speak of universal salvation, but rather it speaks of universal reconciliation. We can think of it this way, that universal reconciliation is not universal salvation in the sense that all people will be saved or redeemed, but rather, it's the acknowledgement that there is a day coming when all of creation, that every ounce, every portion of creation in heaven and on earth and under the earth recognizes Christ as he truly is, thus bringing tranquility and order to creation as the Lord himself will rule over it. We see this reality in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 23. We see this also in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. That all things will be reconciled and that all things will be peaceful as there will no longer be anyone or anything that rebels against God. Yet that does not mean that all people will have peace. Paul moves on to speak of his ministry to the church at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, look what he says about his ministry in chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. 
Remember that Paul is writing to a church where false teachers have risen up and they are trying to dissuade the believers that Christ alone is enough. And Christ says, him, 128, Christ that is, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with, with, with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He goes on and says in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Christ is what's proclaimed by Paul. And Paul wants to see one thing in the churches that he ministers to, that people would grow into the likeness of Christ, that people would mature and look more and more like Christ, that people would be conformed into the image of Christ. And so he says, him we proclaim, and we warn, and we teach, to the end that people would look like Christ. Paul reminds them that true spiritual life is in Christ. Look what he says in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As the church is bombarded with this false teaching, Paul is calling them back to their first love. He says, look, you received Christ Jesus. You received the truth. So what are you to do? You're to walk in the way in which you were taught. And then he says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Christ, 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 he alone is supreme above all else. You were taught that, believed that, now walk in that, in the face of these people who are trying to say otherwise. And then he has this glorious line. Chapter 2, verse 11, In him, Christ, also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Listen to this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Well, how did he do that? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He says, listen, saints, church, all of our trespasses. He doesn't say some. He says all of our trespasses have been forgiven by canceling the record of debt. In the ancient Near East and in the Roman Greco world in the first century, this idea of a record of debt, we might liken it to an IOU. That if you were to go to a blacksmith and say, well, I can't pay this amount of money, but I need this done for my farm or for my house, they would say, okay, I'll cut a deal with you. Give me a record of debt showing that you are indebted to me and that you must come back and pay this when you have the money. Paul says that we all have records of debt, that they stand against us, and that it has legal demands, that, that we belong before the judge and we would be determined or, or we would be uh, convicted of our guilt. That's the, the status of mankind before God. 
But it says that this has been canceled because it's been nailed to the cross. In other words, our IOUs are nailed to the cross as Jesus himself was nailed. This is what we call substitutionary atonement. That Jesus Christ literally took the penalty that we deserve upon himself at the cross. He canceled our record of debt. And Paul reminds them of this. He moves on in chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. He's warning them, Christ is enough, so forget legalism, forget mysticism, forget asceticism, all these other things that are put before you. And he says, don't look to the isms, look to Christ. By the time we get to chapter 3, he is ready to discuss the theology that he has just presented in the first two chapters in practical terms. In a moment, we'll go back to chapter 3, but notice this in chapter 3, verse 18. He tells us practical theology, what it looks like to honor Christ in the household. He shares that in chapter 3, verses 18 through 4.1. Then in chapter 4, verse 2 through 6, Paul tells the church to pray with perseverance and to prayerfully watch with thanksgiving. Then he tells them to pray for his evangelistic ministry, pray for him as he presents the gospel. And then finally he tells the church to walk in wisdom in their witness and in their speech. Paul's concerned about his ministry. He's he's concerned about his gospel presentation, but he's also concerned about theirs. So pray for my ministry and also pray for yourselves that you might present Christ faithfully. And then Paul closes the book by sending greetings to the church. This is the house, if you will. This is the structure in which we are going to find ourselves in in chapter 3. Let's say we've just looked at our new home. Let's say that we are getting tired, that we've progressed into the late evening, and it's time for us to go to the master bedroom so that we might sleep. If the book of Colossians is a house, and Colossians chapter 3 is the master bedroom, we've slept, we're waking up, and we find ourselves in that master bedroom. So please turn back to the beginning of Colossians 3. Here we are, settling into our new home. We haven't looked at the details of the master bedroom yet. We've just woken up. We're lying in bed, and we're simply surveying what is in the room. In other words, what's the immediate context of our passage that we'll get to in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17? And look how Paul starts chapter 3. Remember, the first two chapters, he's just taught, he's just put forth doctrine, he's just put forth uh, theology. And he begins chapter 3 with two commands. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, as he's argued earlier in the book, command number one, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Command number two, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. He says, seek the things that are above. And the verb in the Greek has this idea of striving, of labor, of work, of toil. Put forth effort, in other words. And then he tells us not only to seek, but also to set our minds 
The idea in the Greek is, what are you thinking about? What are you concentrating on? And so what are we doing and what are we thinking about? Paul says both of these things should be oriented to the things that are above. And then Paul tells us exactly why in verses 3 and 4. He says, because we're saved, in a nutshell. And notice what Paul does here. Paul doesn't just say, because we have been saved, but Paul's going to give us a past and a present and a future aspect of our salvation. He's going to say, look, for you have died, verse 3, first part. That's past tense, this idea that you have died in Christ. But look at the present now. He says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is, not was, not will be, but when Christ who is your life appears, let's pause there for a moment. So you have died. Your life is currently, presently hidden with Christ and God. As a matter of fact, that that hiddenness, if you will, that union that you have with Christ is so much so that we can say that Christ is our life if we're in Christ. And he says, when Christ who is your life appears, then he finishes in the future. Then you also will, future tense, appear with him in glory. Paul paints the whole picture for us. In a sense, we are saved. In a sense, we are being saved, if you will. And in the end, we will be completely and totally saved. 1 John 3, 2 would put it this way. When we see him, we will be like him. You all understand that we're in progress. That a day is coming when that progress will cease and we will be like the Lord in moral uh, in, uh, in uh, ethics, we will no longer sin. We will have an everlastingness. But in the meantime, here we are. Here we are battling against the flesh. Here we are fighting against sin. Here we are being conformed, present tense, into the likeness of Christ. So what are we supposed to do is the question. After Paul paints the picture, seek the things above, set your minds on Christ, on the basis of your salvation, we then get a list We then get a list. How are we to respond? And he says, put to death, therefore. On the basis of who you are in Christ, there's some things that you need to put to death. That's what he says. In a moment, we'll get to the things that we need to put on. But right now, he's saying, negatively speaking, there's some things you need to stop. He says, put to to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And here's a stern warning. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. But here's an encouraging verse. In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. The putting to death of sin and in a moment the putting on of Christ-like qualities. These things stem from the reality that we have already put off the old man and put on the new man. In other words, in Christ we have become new creations such that we're enabled and empowered by his grace through the Spirit 
to actually do what Paul is calling us to do, yes, progressively, but also certainly. We've been empowered to put these things off. He says, look, you once walked in these ways. And if you know anything about Paul's theology, he uses that word walk to speak of your characteristic lifestyle. That You once did these things. This is what you did each and every day. You walked this way. This was your lifestyle. But it's what you once did, not what you are to do now. Look what he says in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 9 tells us that we have put off the old self. Verse 10 tells us that we have put on the new self. All by God's grace through the person and work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Then interestingly in verse 11 he says here, and here is reaching back to verse 10, its creator. And remember in chapter 1 verse 16, for, for by Christ all things were created. The church was created by Christ. We become new creations by Christ. And he says here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. You know what would happen in the first century world? People would argue over such matters. Well, well, I'm Jewish, I'm Gentile. Well, I'm, I'm Greek, I'm this, I'm that. And Paul's saying, no, stop it, church. You have a new identity that is primary in your life. You are identified with Christ. You're united to Christ. It emphasizes community and unity in the body of Christ. In other words, we could put it this way. There is no essential distinction for those of us in Christ. Yes, there are functional distinctions. We don't all operate the same. And he actually makes that clear for us in Chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, he talks about wives and husbands and children and slaves and owners and all those things, fathers. We have functional variety. We don't all function. We're not all called by God to do the same things. But if we want to talk value, if we want to talk worth, if we want to talk dignity, we're all on equal footing in the body of Christ. And so Paul says the fact that we have died with Christ, the fact that our life has been hidden with Christ in God, the fact that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory, these facts underline the reality of our union with Christ and therefore with one another. That we're united to Christ truly, such that we are united to one another. Indeed, those in Christ are new creations in him. As Paul would simply put it, you have put off the old self with its practices. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. And this is the room in which our primary text is situated. And so, we've woken up in our new room, but we need to get ready for the day, saints. We need to to get out of bed. So we're going to go to the closet in the first part of verse 12. Remember, 
Saints, remember who you are in Christ. Because only if you remember who you are in Christ will you remember what kind of clothes you need to put on. Look what he says here. In verse 12, the beginning part, he simply says, put on then. The Greek word translated put on generally speaks of, yes, putting on clothing, but in Scripture and elsewhere in ancient Greek literature, it is often used metaphorically to speak of taking on characteristics or taking on virtues. And so he's fronting this command, put on. And then we get to then or therefore or so, and this refers back to the reality just stated in verses 10 through 11, that you have put on the new self, that there has been a real change, that you are a new creation in Christ, but it doesn't stop there. We don't one time believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we don't toil and we don't work and we don't fight against sin. He says, yes, in the eyes of God, you are seen like Christ, that he truly did pay for the penalty of your sin such that when Christ sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ, praise the Lord. But that reality, saints, is the motivation for us to do what? To live like Christ calls us to live. This isn't easy believism. This isn't, hey, Christ died for my sins and I can live however I want. It's I'm so humbled by the reality that Christ paid the penalty for my sins. How can I not live for him? Progressively. And so he says, look, put on, therefore. You have put on the new self. It is being renewed after the image of its creator. There is no distinction. Rather, Christ is all and in all. And so therefore, put on. And the question is this. The question is this, saints. What is going to cause you to get out of bed and put on godly qualities? can be but one thing. It can be but one thing. It has to be the reality that you are in Christ, that your life is Christ, that it's about Christ, that, that he truly has purchased the entirety of your being, and that you've been made new in Christ. There's no other motivation that will help you to live the Christian life faithfully other than your identity in Christ. That's it. That's it. I'm Christ. I'm his. I've been purchased. So therefore, I live in light of that reality. <clears throat> and then for further encouragement, excuse me. <clears throat> then for further encouragement, before we are told specifically what we are to put on, we are reminded who we are. I love how Paul does this. He commands us and he encourages us all at the same time. It's almost like we're, we're looking into the closet, if you will, but we forgot how nice our wardrobe was. We don't have to dress in rags, saints. So listen to what Paul does in the next part of verse 12. He says, put on then, and then he's going to pause. Yes, he'll tell us what to put on, but then he tells us who we are. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. In other words, if you're in Christ, you have been chosen. You have been elected by God. If you are in Christ, you are holy. If you are in Christ, let this blow our minds, Lord. We don't, we don't get it. We don't get it. If we are in Christ, 
the God of the universe, the God who created all things, truly loves us and has regard for us, not on the basis of who we are in and of ourselves, but on the basis of the fact that we're in Christ, that we're truly beloved by God. He says, look, you're elected, you're chosen, you're holy, you're, you're beloved. Remember these realities and let them encourage you in the heat of battle against sin. Put on then, saints, as chosen and beloved and holy. These realities are the launch pad from which we put on the garments of Christ-likeness. They truly are. God loves us in Christ. And when we're humbled before God, receiving that truth, then we're also encouraged to live as we ought. And this brings us to just that. What are we to put on? The wardrobe for unity in the body of Christ. Picking up again in verse 12, he says, compassionate hearts. These are the things we are to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And each and every one of those words describes our Lord. Do they not? Let us look at each one of these briefly. He says we are to put on compassionate hearts. It's literally, in, in the Greek, bowels of mercy. Uh, bowels are really the idea in, in that context, the, the seat of affection, the seat of emotion in one's being. It's what we would call today in our culture the heart. And mercy, what is mercy? Mercy is having legitimate concern for another, especially for one in misfortune. And the amazing thing is, is this is God's disposition toward mankind. That God is merciful, yes, to both the righteous and the wicked, the saved and the unsaved. But he's especially merciful to, toward those of us who are in Christ. Therefore, this should be our disposition toward others as well, especially to those who are in Christ. We're also to put on kindness. And really the idea here is it speaks of being helpful or seeking the benefit of others. Oftentimes when I'm praying, I close my prayers by saying, God, for your glory, for our good, and for the benefit of others. And the reason why I often close my prayers like that is because I need to be reminded that the Christian life is a life that inherently has an eye towards others. The Christian life is a, is a life that actually cares and seeks to help others. And kindness expresses itself in an eagerness, in a readiness to do good for others. I believe it's in Titus chapter 2 that we are to be zealous for good works. We're also to put on humility. The idea here being lowliness of mind that looks toward others' interests. Lowliness of mind about oneself that looks towards others' interests. The term is actually similar to the next word that we'll see, but we need to be reminded, it says this all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God what? That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Raise your hand if you want God to oppose you. <laughs> Praise the Lord. 
then humble yourselves. Then humble yourselves. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this is that Christ-like humility that we read of in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let's actually turn there for a moment. Just one book before. Paul's encouraging the saints in Philippi to humble themselves. To, to seek not only their own interests, but also the interests of others. To have a right regard for their brothers and sisters. We find out later in the book of Philippians that there's some kind of disagreement, that there's some kind of issue between Euodia and Syntyche, and, and he encourages them to agree in the Lord. And how are we to do that? Well, we're told explicitly in chapter 2, verse 5 and forward. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Just listen to this. Familiar passage to us, but always a glorious passage. We are to have this mind, this mind of humility amongst ourselves, and then Paul says it's ours in Christ Jesus, and then he gives us the example of Christ. Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because we're so far removed, we don't understand how humiliating death on a cross was in the first century. But that the Lord of glory would humble himself to the point of death on a cross. But as we just mentioned, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He exalts those who are humble in heart. And the very next three verses in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 say what? Therefore God highly exalted him, so that his name would be the name that is above every name. This is the humility that Christ sets forth as an example for us, but who he also calls us to express this humility towards one another. Back in Colossians 3, Paul tells us that we are also to put on meekness. Let me read briefly out of a Greek lexicon. It, it says this about meekness. Meekness is the quality of being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. I'm sorry, let me put the not in there. Let's try this again. <laughs> meekness is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. That's the right way. The quality of not being overly impressed by one's self-importance. It can be translated gentleness, humility, or meekness. Christ himself says that he is meek. And he is the only one who can rightfully be impressed by himself. That he took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Lastly, we're told to put on patience. And this is the idea of one being able to remain honorable, remain respectable, although he might be provoked to act otherwise. That when a wrong is done to you, rather than fits of anger, rather than lashing out in anger, we are to put on patience. When someone provokes you, when someone prods you, the Lord tells us to be patient. And it makes us think of what? He offered not a word. Though he was beat and he was scourged and ultimately he was nailed to the cross. 
rather than rightly in that moment. Righteous anger, him lashing out, he says what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We are to put on this patience. This is the list of garments that we are to put on. And verse 13 explains the way in which these garments, if we do, have, if we do indeed put them on, these garments express unity in the body of Christ. Look at verse 13 with me. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It is with the list of virtues in verse 12 that we are to bear or we are to put up with one another. I am to tolerate you in the classical sense of toleration, and you are to tolerate me with godliness and Christ-like character in the body of Christ, regardless of the differences that we have, insofar as those differences do not contradict the Word of God. We may have different opinions. We may have different views on some things. And so we need to think deeply, and we need to think wisely, and we need to think biblically about preferences versus biblical prescriptions. Some of us have an opinion about everything. And whether that's helpful or hurtful, I'll leave it up to you to decide. But you have to realize that you can have an opinion or a preference. But you cannot prescribe that opinion or preference to your brother or sister in Christ and say, I'm going to treat you on the basis of how you receive my preferences. That's sin. And so what we should do is think, hmm, biblically, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible prescribe? And how does, that, how does that work itself out in my life? Such that there are things that we must stand against. And if someone professes the name of Christ, we, it's good and right for us to say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is what Scripture says about this, brother, sister. And we seek to win that brother or sister over. They may be ignorant or they may be in sin. But if we're preferential and if we treat our preferences as we do biblical prescription, then we are the ones who are in sin. So we have to tolerate one another, and we have to think biblically to do that. Furthermore, if you have a grievance or a complaint against me, or if I have a grievance or a complaint against you, what are we to do? Hold grudges? Bite? Devour one another? No, we are to forgive one another in the same way that we have been forgiven by the Lord. Notice that our forgiveness, our forgiveness of one another in the body of Christ is primarily about and enabled by the way in which we have been forgiven. We have to understand this, church. The way that you forgive or don't forgive someone in the body of Christ says far more about your relationship with the Lord than it does your relationship with that person. We are to forgive and are enabled to forgive on the basis of the person and work of Christ. The forgiven saint is eager to forgive others, in other words. If we understand how great sinners we are, and how great our salvation is, and how great God's forgiveness of our sins is, then we're eager to forgive others. That doesn't mean that we don't confront things. That doesn't mean we don't talk about things. That doesn't mean that we don't work through things. Forgiveness is not forgetting, saints. It's not. We can work through things, but we need to be eager to do so. 
The forgiven saint is eager to forgive others only if he begins to realize the unbelievable grace that has been displayed to him when he has been forgiven by the Lord. We already read earlier in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, that that record of debt with its legal demands have been nailed to the cross. It is finished. And so we seek to forgive one another on that basis. And this way we should also forgive. We can put it this way. Grudges do not have a place in the Christian life. Grudges do not have a place in the Christian life. If you hold grudges, then you will end up putting into practice that which you were told to put away. Remember in verse 8 of chapter 3, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. The person who doesn't forgive often functions in the way that they're told not to, which is depicted for us in verse 8. So the question for you and I is this. Who are you holding a grudge against? Seriously think. Who is it that in your heart you're holding a grudge against? Is it your spouse? Is it your parents, your children, your siblings, your whole family, your boss, your pastors, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your co-workers, your fellow church member? Would to God we would be the kind of people who take these things seriously and think, am I holding a grudge? And then we'd make a beeline to go to our brothers and sisters especially and deal with it in the way that we've been told to deal with it, in the Matthew 18 kind of sense. God help us. God help us to dwell on how we have been forgiven such that we might forgive others also. The virtues that we are to clothe ourselves with express themselves in the context of the local church, which is often messy, as we all know. But we have opportunities as we live our lives side by side to put these things into practice. And Paul's going to boil this argument down into one idea. If there's one cloak, if you will, that we need to put on each and every day, Paul tells us what it is in verse 14. And above all these... And above all these things that I've just told you to put on, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, genuine love holds everything together in perfect or mature unity. Time won't allow us, but perhaps this reality is most clearly expressed in the book of 1 John. You can jot these down if you want to read them later, but 1 John chapter 2 verses 10 through 11. 1 John chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. 1 John chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. Or you can just read the entirety of the book of 1 John, and what you're going to do is you're going to realize that John says, look, if you don't love your brother, then you don't love God. I'm baffled when when there are people who I meet that, oh, I love the Lord Jesus Christ, but I hate his church. What what are you talking about? What are you talking about? The church is by far a perfect place. Amen? But the church is being perfected. The church is by far a perfect place, 
but the church is being perfected and we will be perfect. Praise the Lord. And that reality motivates us to deal with one another. That reality that Christ is at work in us, that Christ is the one who is exalted, and that oftentimes when we have issues with one another and we work through them in love, that we ourselves are being conformed into the image of Christ in that moment, that's encouraging, saints. That will allow us to, to step into those hard situations and say, man, this is really hard right now, and I'm having a really hard time of loving this person. But by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, I'm going to take God at his word, and I'm going to step into it and seek to love my brother and sister in Christ. What is love? Let me give you just a quick definition so we have clarity on what love is when we're talking about biblical love. Love is the quality of warm regard for an interest in another. We're told elsewhere to love one another with brotherly affection, that we genuinely care for one another. And so biblical love is an expression of genuine care, an action toward the well-being of another, give me now, regardless of the impact upon oneself. Regardless of the impact upon oneself. Sometimes we'll do something in love, and you know what's going to come back to us? Sometimes venom is going to come back to us. But we do so anyways for God's glory. Let's continue as we make our way to our last section. We're in the bedroom. We've gotten out of bed. We went to the closet. We're looking at our wardrobe. We see that it's lovely and it's beautiful. We've examined each piece of our wardrobe. And dare I say that we've taken the biblical bait, that we've actually put on the things that we're told to put on. Praise the Lord. But we haven't had breakfast yet. And so let's look at the food for worship in the body of Christ, verses 15 through 17. Paul says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And before we look at each verse, I just want us to notice the emphasis on Christ's attributes in his word as the internal reality that motivates the outward action. Look at verse 15. It's the peace of Christ ruling in the heart that leads to the peace we are called to in the body of Christ. Verse 16, it is the word of Christ dwelling in you richly that leads to the communication of the word to others and to God. And verse 17 isn't as obvious. It begins with that outward action saying, whatever you do in word or deed, but we have to realize in context that the internal desires, what's going on in one's heart, animates the outward expressions. Or in other words, we could say, what is going on inside will come outside. 
For instance, it's, I believe, Luke 6.45 that says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so these outward, outward deeds are only done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me now. Insofar as the heart is fixed on Christ, which culminates in giving thanks to God. Reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12. We are to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. And so the big picture here is what? That we need to be feeding on Christ through his word in order to live and worship as we ought. In the context of the local church, I'm not just talking about on Sundays. I'm talking about each and every day. So let's look at each one of these verses. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. We remember that uh, the realities of verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, that, that we are saved, uh, past tense, present tense, future tense, and the realities that we saw in verses 9 through 11, that we've put off the old self and put on the new self. These realities provide the peace of Christ because believers are situated in Christ and have peace with God. And if we have peace with God, if we are in Christ, then we should therefore have peace with one another. And it's the peace of Christ that is to rule. Consider that word, rule, reign, in the hearts of the believers. The word there, rule, means to control, to be in control of someone's actions by means of making a decision. It means to be in control of someone's action by means of making a decision. In other words, Paul is exhorting believers to let the peace of Christ be the decisive factor in their hearts, which will manifest itself through their outward actions. Let the peace of Christ rule. So much so, you make decisions on the basis of Christ, is what Paul is saying. He then reminds us that this is what we are called to in one body. So rather than quarreling, rather than arguing, ra rather than holding grudges, the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts brings about unity. And just a word on unity, unity, unity is never bereft of truth. There's no true unity if we put the truth to the side. And so truth, it's on the basis of truth that we can have unity. And then he says, I love, I love this. I just love this. And be thankful. And be thankful. It's almost like Paul forgot for a moment. He gets caught up in the issues going on in Colossians. But earlier in the chapter, he's giving thanks to God for them. And he realizes, you guys need to do that too. That we can always be thankful to God regardless of the circumstance that we find ourselves in. And I know that's really easy to say on a Sunday morning. I know that's really easy to believe when we're reading through our Bibles and we find ourselves in a good season of life. But as we read through the scriptures and as we interact with saints who have gone before us in really hard situations and they show us what it looks like to be thankful in Christ and to have joy in the midst of real sorrow, we realize that we too, by the power of the Spirit, can be thankful. Thankfulness is indeed the antidote to discontentment. It's the antidote to discontentment, to grumbling, to complaining. In all things give thanks. In all circumstances give thanks. Why? Why? Because when we are giving thanks, we are forced 
to take the primary focus off of ourselves, to take the primary focus off of our circumstances, and we begin to realize that God is faithfully working through each and every situation that we find ourselves in. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. But the word of Christ is to dwell there also. Verse 16 tells us that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And it works itself out in teaching and admonishing one another and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts. The word of Christ, broadly speaking, can refer to the Old and the New Testament. Narrowly speaking, it can refer to the New Testament as we remember that Christ promises his apostles that he's going to send the Spirit and that the Spirit would remind them of the truths that he told them. And then they write, and here we have, by God's grace and in his providence and in his preservation, the text of Scripture before our eyes. It is the word of Christ that is to dwell richly or abundantly in you. And if it does... And if the word of Christ dwells in you richly, it's going to express itself in two ways. First is this, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching is to provide instruction either formally or informally. It can be a conversation out back as we have fellowship with one another. It can look like this, preaching. It can be a class. It can be counseling. It can be a lot of different things. It's biblical instruction, either formally or informally. And admonishing is to provide correction or to provide counsel regarding situations to avoid or behaviors to cease. I want to encourage us, saints, in this local church to love God enough and to love your brothers and sisters enough to be bold enough that when you see that there are behaviors in one another's lives that need to cease, when you see that there are situations that need to be avoided, that you would do what we're called to do here. That you would step in and say, let me admonish you in the Lord on the basis of God's word. That we would be caring and concerning of one another that we would do that. And the beautiful thing about that is, yes, it takes courage and maybe it's not fun, but the reaction isn't what matters. You honor God in doing that. And I don't know, I can't give a percentage, but oftentimes when we do that, God honors his word. The spirit of God convicts people such that even if it's not immediately, it ruminates and we help one another turn away from sin. So I'd encourage us to admonish one another. We are to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, not just in knowledge, but in wisdom, thinking through how do we apply biblical truth, how do we apply biblical knowledge to our day-to-day lives. That's one way that the word of Christ dwelling in you expresses itself. The other way is this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. One of the things I love as we've grown as a church is guys like Dennis and guys like Isaac and guys like Noah and the people who put the songs together, they're so theologically rich so often that it's the word of God that we are singing in some way, shape, or form. And if it dwells in us, it has to come out of us, and oftentimes that's in corporate worship. And sometimes that can be in your home. Parents, let me encourage you to sing songs in your home with your kids. 
Get excited about it. The Lord is good. Praise the Lord. And let them give you that weird little look. Dad, what are you doing right now? And you say, I'm praising the Lord. You better get with it, fella. That may or may not happen in in my household from time to time. All this is to be done with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. We speak and sing with gratitude in our inner being toward God. And then Paul finally wraps it up this way. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's just put it this way. The Christian life is a comprehensive life. The Christian life is a comprehensive life. There is not a portion of your life that does not belong to Christ. You are not to compartmentalize your life, but rather whatever you do, it is to be done unto Christ with thanksgiving to God through Christ. And so, beloved, every aspect of your life may it be live joyfully in Christ, dependently through Christ, thankfully with Christ, and purposefully for Christ, to the glory of God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, and for the well-being of others. Now and forevermore, may God help us. This is the last thing I have for you. I just simply want to tell you why I framed this text by walking through it in a morning routine in a house. Why is the book of Colossians likened to a house? Why Colossians 3 is the master bedroom? Why get out of bed and look at the wardrobe in the closet? Why... Look at each garment carefully. Why consider what we're going to have for breakfast? And it's simply put, because the daily routine, the daily routine is the way that God has designed our maturation in Christ-likeness. We can think about five years from now. We can think about 10 years from now. We can think about what if our circumstances were different. We can imagine when things might be different. But if and when we do all those things, you know what always holds true? Tomorrow morning's coming. Tomorrow morning's coming. And when that alarm goes off, what are you going to do? And what Paul is pleading with the church at Colossians or at Colossae, and what I'm pleading with you, is that you would not hit the snooze button. That you would not sleep the day away. That you would look around the room that you would acknowledge God, that you would get your bearings, that you would go to the closet and that you would praise God that you have true, right, awesome spiritual clothes to put on each and every day if indeed you are in Christ, and that you would actually go further than that, not just thank God that you can, but actually put on those garments, and that you would feast on Christ in the morning and throughout the day, and that by the grace of God we would make This, our routine, by God's grace, in his power. May we make this our routine. Lord, would you please help us to do just that? That we would wake up, Lord. That you would help us to acknowledge you. That we would grow deeper in our understanding of what you've given us in Christ. 
that we would find our identity in Christ and nowhere else. That we would put on the godly attributes that you've called us to put on, knowing that we can't do it in our own strength, but knowing that we can do it in the strength that you've provided to us. And Lord, that we would live joyful, thankful lives each and every day until we die or until you come back for us. Help us to think about your glory, which is for our good, and help us to think about how we might benefit others around us, that all may see Christ. Help us, O oh God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.